Norman Centuries, Episode 20, The Norman Achievement. Welcome back. Last time I talked about the career of Bohemond I, which saw great heights but ultimately ended with a note of failure. We left the Principality of Antioch in the capable hands of Bohemond's maternal nephew Tancred, who had been serving as regent ever since 1105, when Bohemond had left to drum up support for his crusade against Byzantium. Tancred had always been hot-headed. He'd been furious with Bohemond for trying to woo the Byzantine emperor, and when his uncle elected to stay in Antioch following its capture, he continued on with the main army toward Jerusalem. There he displayed the usual Norman flair for the dramatic. He claimed to be the first crusader to enter Jerusalem, although this was disputed, and was awarded the title Prince of Galilee for his contributions to the crusade. The addition of a title seems to have tempered his youthful recklessness, and when he was recalled by Bohemond in 1100 to act as regent of Antioch, he displayed rare administrative gifts. In fact, he proved to be a good deal better as a ruler than his uncle. Bohemond's loose gains were carefully consolidated, and Antioch's territory was expanded at the expense of the Byzantines and the neighboring crusader county of Edessa. Bohemond's return from captivity briefly disrupted this growth, but by 1105, Tancred was back in control as his uncle left for the disastrous campaign against Constantinople. When the Emperor Alexius claimed Antioch as a vassal state after the debacle, Tancred simply refused to honor the terms of the treaty, rightly guessing that the Byzantines weren't ready for a full-scale war with the Crusader state. Two years later saw the high point of Antioch's power, when he brought the formidable castle of Croc de Chevalier, the bedrock of the Crusader presence in Syria, under his control. In 1111, he got word from Sicily that Bohemond was dead, and that he would continue in the regency for the four-year-old Bohemond II. The city could ask no better guardian. Tancred was just 36, and at the peak of his powers. Unfortunately for all involved, though, a typhoid epidemic swept the region the next year, and the childless Tancred was among its first victims. Bohemond II, the reigning prince of Antioch, waited 14 years until he was 18 to claim his throne. In the meantime, the principality was governed by the king of Jerusalem, who ruled it as a vassal state. Other humiliations were soon to follow. When Bohemond II finally got to his capital, he only succeeded in managing its decline. In the west, Roger II of Sicily claimed his Italian lands, and in the east, where he was at least energetic, he couldn't cooperate with the other crusader princes against their common Muslim enemies. In 1130, he was killed in an ambush. His head was embalmed and sent in a silver box as a gift to the caliph. His only surviving offspring was a ten-year-old girl named Constance, and in the interest of the state, she was quickly married off to the 36-year-old Raymond of Poitiers. The new prince showed his mettle immediately, deciding to attack the Byzantines, the one potential Christian ally in the region. The Emperor John the Beautiful showed up with an immense army, and the frightened Raymond immediately agreed to make Antioch a vassal state. The two then set off for an extended campaign to break Muslim power in the area, which would have guaranteed Antioch security. But Raymond squandered the opportunity, spending the entire time sulking in his tent, playing dice with his fellow vassals. He soon reaped his reward. The resurgent Muslims led by the capable Nur ad-Din invaded his territory in an attempt to head off the Second Crusade. Raymond was killed along with most of the army, and half of his territory evaporated. His surviving son, Bohemond III, was too young to rule, so Constance married the well-known fighter Renald of Châtillon. Renald was a scoundrel, 
and adding a title just gave him a larger platform for mischief. Having learned nothing from his predecessor, he decided that his first order of business would be to attack the Byzantine Empire. When the Patriarch refused to sanction or pay for the expedition, Rinald had him seized, stripped, and covered with honey. Then he left him in the boiling summer sun until he changed his mind. Rinald got his campaign, but he had chosen his moment especially poorly. The reigning emperor, Manuel Comnenus, was Byzantium's final great warrior emperor, and he was already preparing his army for a campaign. He appeared before Antioch in a foul mood, forcing the terrified Rinald to grovel barefoot before his tent, before grudgingly allowing him to lead his horse through the city to take possession of it. If there was a silver lining to Antioch's humiliation, it was that Rinald was kept on a leash too short to get into trouble, and the city had a decade of relative peace. That changed in 1180, however, when Manuel died, and Rinald characteristically picked a fight with his most powerful Muslim enemy, Saladin. He so enraged the usually reserved sultan that Saladin vowed to personally behead him, which he eventually did in 1187. By this time, the principality's days were clearly numbered, and it was kept alive only by the continued disunity of the Muslim world and the infrequent crusades that would occasionally pass through. It was governed by a string of non-entities who preferred to live in the more defensible Tripoli and seldom, if ever, actually visited Antioch. When the Near East was convulsed by the great struggle between Islamic and Mongol forces, it was only a question of which of the two would conquer the tottering state. In 1260, Bohemond VI, the great times five grandson of the founder, chose to back the Mongols and agreed to become their vassal. But that strategy miserably backfired when the terrible Egyptian sultan Bayabars crushed the Mongol forces attempting to enter Palestine. In retaliation for backing the wrong side, Bayabars invaded Antioch, brutally sacking it in 1268 while taunting Bohemond for the impotence of his allies. The city never recovered. Bohemond VI retreated to Tripoli, the last outpost of the principality. But two decades later, it too fell, bringing the first and the longest-lasting crusader state to an end. The title Prince of Antioch continued to be claimed. Bohemond VII, the last direct male heir, maintained it in exile, but it was of decreasing value and was usually granted to junior members of the family. Eventually, it was acquired by a Portuguese prince in 1456, and when he was poisoned by his own mother-in-law the next year, no one bothered to claim it. By that time, however, the world was a vastly different place than that encountered by Rollo or William the Conqueror or Robert Giscard. And although they had not set out to do so, they had played a pivotal role in creating the new Europe. The Norman achievement is all the more astonishing when you consider how short it actually was. The current monarch of England is of Norman descent, of course, but in a way the pure Norman rule in England ceased in 1154, when William the Conqueror's grandson Stephen was supplanted by Henry II, the first Angevin king. By that time, the extraordinary Norman spirit was already on the wane. 1154 also saw the death of Roger II, the brilliant Norman king of Sicily. Norman rule lingered in the south for another four decades, but never with the same vitality. In the east, the Norman decline was considerably quicker. Despite clinging to life for almost two centuries, the Principality of Antioch really only had two effective rulers, the last of whom, Tancred, died prematurely in 1112. 
The restless energy of the Normans was diluted over time. There were always a minority in the places they ruled. And, to paraphrase the historian David Howarth, they were eventually conquered by those they conquered. The Normans in England became English, and those in Sicily became Italian. Even Normandy itself was absorbed by France in 1204, and the Normans disappeared into the surrounding population. But for two magnificent generations, they had the world at their fingertips. William the Conqueror, Robert Giscard, and the great Count Roger were all contemporaries, as were their children William II of England, Bowman of Antioch, and Roger II of Sicily. In each case, a conqueror had been followed by an administrator who consolidated the gains and laid the foundations of a lasting state. The astonishing rise of the Normans can be seen in their first illustrious generation. In 1054, the three men who had become the most famous Normans were an illegitimate duke, a glorified pirate, and a penniless knight. A hundred years later, their descendants ruled over the two most powerful and glittering courts of Europe and the greatest of the Crusader states. But there was a more enduring and important change. Their centuries of dominance had seen a fundamental shift. No observer in the 10th century would have guessed that anything lasting would come out of Western Europe. It was surrounded by powerful Byzantine and Muslim neighbors, scientifically and technologically behind, and fragmented into dozens of minor decentralized states who incessantly squabbled and seemed incapable of unifying. It was defensive and inward-looking, buffeted by Viking attacks from the north, Arab raids from the west, and the Magyar invasions from the east. By the 12th century, that had changed. Europe was confident and expansive on all sides, rolling back the Muslim conquest in both Spain and Asia Minor. It was unified into strong, centralized kingdoms and poised for the explosive growth which would eventually see it dominate the globe. The Normans are at the great tipping point of European history. It was their energy and daring which transformed Europe, their dynamism that was at the forefront of the new spirit of the age. It's not a coincidence that the First Crusade was led by Norman princes and fought by Norman knights, nor that successive popes were propped up by Norman arms, or that armies as far apart as Asia Minor and Spain had Norman mercenaries at their core. It's a pity that their story is usually only half told. For too many English speakers, it begins and ends at Hastings. But it deserves to be told in its entirety, if for nothing else than because of this. Their progress may have been piecemeal and their frustrations continuous, but they persevered. And their success when it came was due to a mix of audacity, luck, and personal ambition. They demonstrate, if proof is needed, that exceptional individuals can change the course of history. If you'd like to know more about them, I've written a book with Crux Publishing called The Normans, From Raiders to Kings, which details their story and how they fit into the larger context of Western history. It's available now from Amazon.com. If you'd like to hear more about the Normans from the perspective of their fiercest enemies, you might enjoy my podcast, Twelve Byzantine Rulers. Or if you'd like a bit more depth about the forgotten half of the Roman Empire, try my book, Lost to the West. Thanks for listening. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.